horrible, horrible policies that our country has right now. The killing of innocent people uh, for the United States and for Israel. It has to end and cease fire now. And I understand there is a Gaza flotilla being organized. We only have 30 seconds. Can you explain what that is? Yes, we need to take action. I mean, right now there's there's lots of talk. There are trucks that are stalled all over uh, northern Egypt and our Gaza flotilla movement. Uh, we are going to be doing something soon, and we will let you all know, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, as soon as we get the plans for uh, challenging again the Israeli naval blockade of Gaza. And do you know, Levi, as we have just 10, 15 seconds, would Aaron have described this as suicide? No, absolutely not. Explain. It was, he, he didn't have thoughts of suicide. He had thoughts of justice. That's what this was about. It wasn't about his life. It was about using his life to send a message. I want to thank you both so much for being with us. Levi Pierpont, dear friend of Aaron Bushnell, he, Levi, is a conscientious objector and Anne Wright, 20-year U.S. Army vet. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to KBOO Portland. Thank you for tuning in to KBOO Community Radio during the special programming campaign, All Thrills, No Frills, Volume 3. This February and March, you will hear different marathons and series, all brought to you by our talented programmers, including marathons like our very own Bluegrass Marathon. If you'd like to help KBOO reach our $22,000 goal by March 16th, go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to the number 44321 right now. Hey, KBOO listeners, you want to tune in to PDX Progressive Talk Radio every fourth Wednesday at 7 p.m., where we do a deep dive into issues that matter most to our community. Every month, we're taking on homelessness, community policing, supporting local small businesses, and so much more. We're here to foster solutions and move progressive change. Brought to you by our dedicated team, me, Sherry Morish, and our host, Moses Ross, this show is your go-to for progressive dialogue and local action. Don't miss out on the conversations that are shaping Portland and the Pacific Northwest. Join us on PDX Progressive Talk Radio every fourth Wednesday at 7 p.m. right here on KBU, where together, we're the voice of change. And now, your daily volunteer-produced community newscast, the KBU Evening News. Coming up on the KBU Evening News, court filings indicate the driver who hit and killed a man at a homeless camp in Portland did so intentionally. 
The Oregon bill to recriminalize drug possession passes out of committee. And in national news, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell says he will resign from the role in November. Good evening. This is the KBU Evening News for Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. I'm Reed Johnson. And I'm Althea Billings. On Sunday, a driver crashed into a homeless camp near Southeast Belmont Street and MLK in Portland, hitting and killing a man. Court documents say the driver did it intentionally. 22-year-old Shane McKeever allegedly started an argument with people in the camp. Then he got into a silver Chevy Malibu and intentionally drove into a man at the camp at 40 to 50 miles an hour, dragging him along the sidewalk. Court documents say he then tried to hit several other tents and another person before fleeing the scene and ditching the car. The car had apparently been stolen the day before. Witnesses found McKeever and held him down until police arrived. The man he hit was taken to an area hospital where he later died. Sarah Iannarone is the executive director of the Street Trust, an advocacy organization that supports multimodal transportation options. She tweeted about the killing, saying, quote, This criminal behavior is a direct consequence of community and elected leaders using dehumanizing language, forwarding discriminatory policies, and investing in infrastructure and systems which degrade the equal rights and dignity of all people, end quote. McKeever was charged with first-degree manslaughter, and he pled not guilty on Monday. He's due back in court next month. A bill to recriminalize drug possession, rolling back a part of Measure 110, passed out a committee in Salem with bipartisan support. It could be voted on by the House later this week. HB 4002 would make low-level possession of illicit drugs a misdemeanor punishable by up to six months in jail. The bill would also expand access to medications that treat opioid withdrawal, pay for new behavioral health services, while also making it easier for prosecutors to seek harsher convictions for drug dealers. It's a compromised version of an earlier iteration. In an attempt to appease Republicans, Democratic lawmakers removed requirements that police must offer people alternatives to jail, like treatment. It was also conceived without the input of civil rights and racial justice groups, including Unite Oregon, the ACLU, Latino Network, and the Urban League of Portland, who opposed the bill. The racial and ethnic impact statement of the bill confirms that it will have a disproportionate impact on communities of color, predicts about a 30% higher conviction rate for black Oregonians under the new law, meaning for the same charge, people of other racial groups would get less, a lesser or no penalty. Advocates with Unite Oregon and Oregonians for Safety and Recovery stood in the hallways of the Capitol with with tape over their mouths in protest of HB 4002. In a social media post, Unite Oregon wrote, quote, Lawmakers are dismissing the concerns of most Oregonians who opposed recriminalizing addiction, making false promises about their bill's impact on arrests, and disregarding warnings from BIPOC organizations. Today, our visibility will speak volumes, even if our voices are silenced, end quote. Representative Andrea Valderrama of Portland said, quote, The disproportionate impact on my communities is ultimately too concerning for me to support the bill, end quote. Senator Floyd Prozanski of Eugene said there was little sign there would be enough treatment services in place to support what the bill proposes. He also pointed out that the state's overburdened courts were unlikely to be able to absorb additional criminal defendants. Valderrama and Prozanski were the sole nay votes on passing the bill out of committee. 
House Speaker Mike Johnson commits to avoiding a government shutdown. Republican senators call for a trial of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And a Democratic senator aims to ensure protection for IVF nationwide. With more on these stories, it's Alex Gonzalez with 2024 Talks. Welcome to 2024 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. We believe that we can get to agreement on these issues and prevent a government shutdown, and that's our first uh, responsibility. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson reportedly committed to trying to avoid a government shutdown at what's being described as an intense Tuesday meeting with President Joe Biden and other congressional leaders. But there are still questions about how to get there by Friday. Johnson says the border is a catastrophe and remains a top priority while Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer wants aid for Ukraine. But he can't say it won't do Ukraine until we get border. He's tried to do border for six months and couldn't come up with a single Democratic vote. The Senate has passed a foreign aid package, including billions for Ukraine, after Republicans killed a bipartisan immigration deal at the instruction of former President Donald Trump. Johnson has refused to let the House take up the aid package. Following the Alabama Supreme Court's rule that embryos have the rights of children, Senate Democrats are backing nationwide protections for in vitro fertilization. Illinois' Tammy Duckworth, who has had children via IVF, is sponsoring federal protections for families who want fertility treatments. After Roe v. Wade was overturned, actually even before then, when Donald Trump promised to only appoint justices who would overturn it, I warned that red states would come for IVF. And now they have. Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Whip John Thune are calling for a Senate trial of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The House passed Mayorkas's impeachment charges by a single vote in spite of objections from Democrats that he committed no high crime or misdemeanor. Thune insists the secretary's actions are a miscarriage of the law. We ought to be conducting a trial in the United States Senate to determine, uh, again, whether or not these are impeachable offenses. It's expected Trump and Biden will win Michigan's presidential primary, but observers will be watching for protest votes. A large number of Democrats opposed to White House Gaza policy may vote uncommitted. Arizona GOP lawmakers won a ballot referendum to tighten immigration verification for independent subcontractors and make it harder for migrants to access public benefits. Some are drawing parallels with SB 1070, a controversial 2010 law some say led to racial profiling. Alejandra Gomez with Living United for Change in Arizona says they're ready for a fight at the ballot box. We are not the Arizona of 2010. We are the Arizona of 2024, and this coalition is a powerful coalition, and we will not stand for the division and for the hate. Finally, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre has a harsh reply to recent comments from Donald Trump about African Americans. The Republican frontrunner recently said blacks are starting to support him because they know what it's like to face four criminal trials. Jean-Pierre, who is black, calls that repugnant and divisive. It is profane to compare the long painful history, the long painful history of abuse and discrimination suffered by black Americans and uh, to something that is totally different. I'm Alex Gonzalez for Pacific Network and Public News Service. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell will step down from his role in November. 82-year-old McConnell announced his plans in a speech on the Senate floor. He served in the Senate since 1985 and became the leader of the Republicans in the Senate in 2007. He says he'll plan to serve out the rest of his Senate term, which lasts until 2027. McConnell said in a speech, quote, I still have enough gas in the tank to thoroughly disappoint my critics. He's faced questions about his health in re- recent months. Twice last year, he froze and seemed unable to speak at different p- press conferences, and he fell at a D.C. event and had to be hospitalized. 
most likely to succeed McConnell is one of the three Johns, John Thune of South Dakota, John Cornyn of Texas, or John Barrasso of Wyoming. Whoever the next Republican Senate leader is, they'll take over in January. McConnell is the longest-serving Senate GOP leader, and he will leave a legacy of reshaping the federal judiciary to more heavily represent conservative and Republican interests. In the Oregon legislature, the anti-book ban bill is progressing. Senate Bill 1583, which would block school districts from banning books for discriminatory reasons, passed the Senate on Tuesday on a party-line vote. The bill would block school officials from removing or refusing to offer library books or textbooks because they contain the perspective of or are written by members of a protected class. That includes people of color, LGBTQ people, religious minorities, and more. SB 1583 still allows districts to pull books that are not age-appropriate for students. Senator Lou Frederick of Portland is the chief sponsor of the bill. He said in a press release, quote, All kids deserve the opportunity to see themselves, their families, and members of their community represented in the books they read, end quote. Senator Suzanne Weber of Tillamook opposed the bill. She said, quote, It will be seen by school boards, particularly school boards in areas where Democrats are not in the majority, as an attack on local control, end quote. Ninety-three books were highlighted for possible removal from Oregon schools and public libraries last year. That's more than any year since data collection on that issue started in 1987. The bill now goes to the State House for approval, where Democrats also have a majority. The remote landscape of southeastern Oregon is receiving additional protections. The Bureau of Land Management has finalized its resource management plan for the southeast corner of the state, and it includes protections for parts of the Oahe and Malheur Rivers and canyonlands in the region. Michael O'Casey with the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership says it's an exciting announcement that will protect the sensitive landscape from activities like surface development and road building. When that landscape is impacted, it's really hard to bring it back and restore it. And so it's really important to protect the places out there that are healthy and intact and resistant and resilient is a term that we use to stresses from climate change or whatever else. O'Casey says the plan still allows for traditional uses of the land, like hunting and fishing. The BLM's final resource management plan for the district covers 4.6 million acres of public land. O'Casey says the agency deliberated for years on this decision. This planning process was initiated in 2010, and so it's been 14 years in the making. The good news of that, even though it's been a really long time, was that there was really robust public comment process done throughout this. O'Casey says appointing the Southeast Oregon Resource Advisory Council in 2014 was an important part of public involvement. The council was made up of a wide variety of area locals, including grazing, energy, and conservation interests, who made recommendations for management in the region. Portland city elections are less than nine months away, and the field for mayor is getting crowded. Iconic Portland stripper Liz Osthus, known by her stage name Viva Las Vegas, has entered into the race. Osthus started dancing at Mary's Club in 1997 after graduating from college. Since then, she's written a memoir and has been the subject of both a documentary and a locally staged opera. She's also a mentee of fellow mayoral candidate Mingus Maps. Maps's mayoral campaign has faltered recently due to money problems. The Oregonian reported Tuesday that the MAPS team has spent all of the nearly $50,000 it raised and is now thousands of dollars in debt.
Joining Austis and MAPS in the race so far are Darrell Kinsey-Bay, Keith Wilson, and current city council members Renee Gonzalez and Carmen Rubio. You are listening to the KBOO Evening News. Stay tuned after this newscast for Coast Range Radio. At 6, it's The Underground, produced by KBOO's own Youth Collective. Then at 7, PDX Progressive Talk Radio. Tonight's weather will be rainy with an overnight low of 46. Tomorrow, that rain continues with a high of 48. Today in history, in 1929, architect Frank Gehry was born. His genre of work is contemporary architecture, with notable buildings like the Dancing House in Prague and the Museum of Pop Culture, formerly the EMP, in Seattle. In 2010, Vanity Fair called him the most important architect of our age. Our quote of the day is from French philosopher and essayist Michel de Montaigne, born this day in 1953, in, excuse me, in 1533. He said, quote, wherever your life ends, it is all there. The advantage of living is not measured by length, but by use. Some men have lived long and lived little. Attend to it while you are in it. It lies in your will, not in the number of years for you to have lived enough. One chord and do that till you get it real good. All right, so um, show us how, what you're doing. 19 Jewish activists and allies in Portland who were arrested in mid-January for protesting outside the Wendell Wyatt Federal Building will have their charges dropped. The protest was organized by Jewish Voice for Peace against the U.S. backing of Israel's assault on Gaza. Protesters faced misdemeanor charges for disrupting traffic outside the building. At a press conference Wednesday, defendants say that they will take a plea deal to do community service in exchange for having their charges dropped. But the group's work isn't over. In Gaza, 1.5 million Palestinians have been displaced by bombing and attacks, and they face starvation and disease. More than 29,000 have been killed by Israeli forces since October, including more than 12,000 children. Jewish Voice for Peace Portland's protests in January were timed with the International Court of Justice case against Israel, where the court found Israel's actions could amount to genocide. Locally, the group is calling on Multnomah County commissioners to pass Commissioner Lori Stegman's ceasefire resolution. They're also calling on state representatives to sign on to the ceasefire now resolution and calling on federal legislators to vote no on sending additional military aid to Israel. Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley remains the only federal Oregon lawmaker to call for a ceasefire. Every year, wildfire impacts air quality in the West more and more. A new grant from the EPA will help help the Nez Perce tribe protect tribal buildings from wildfire smoke. With that story and more, it's Antonio Gonzalez with National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Research shows that people in the West will face more days of unhealthy air due to wildfire smoke. And there's growing recognition that smoke does not just affect the air outside, it often creeps indoors. A new grant could bolster some tribal buildings against smoke. Boise State Public Radio's Rachel Cohen reports from Idaho for the Mountain West News Bureau. Last August, a wildfire burned just minutes away from the Clearwater Memorial Library in Orofino. It ended up destroying six houses. Library Director Jessica Long says some families were sheltering across the street and came over to read books and play games. Having a place that has clean air and is safe for them and their kids, I think that was important. 
black smoke clouded the air. Long set up a DIY air filter inside. Soon, the library will become even more of a refuge. The Nespers Tribe was awarded a 1.3 million dollar grant from the Environmental Protection Agency to better protect community buildings from wildfire smoke. Julie Simpson coordinates the tribe's air quality program. People are not going to necessarily go to a newly established location during a wildfire smoke event. They will want to stay in their homes, or they are going to want to go to a, a regular public place. The grant will go toward deploying air filters, setting up air monitoring, and renovating HVAC systems in 16 buildings on the reservation, including libraries like in Orofino, community centers, and youth centers. That was Rachel Cohen reporting. The Coeur d'Alene tribe has come to a historic agreement with the Bonneville Power Administration to address how dams in the Columbia Basin have affected fish populations on the tribe's North Idaho reservation. Spokane Public Radio's Steve Jackson has more. The tribe and the Bonneville Power Administration have been in discussions for several years related to the challenges in the way the dams have been managed and how the historic fisheries in the region have been hurt. Under the agreement, the BPA will help provide $10 million a year for restoring stream habitat for salmon runs, and $45 million for two fish hatcheries. One hatchery will be on Hangman Creek for salmon stock; the other, on Lake Cordelaine, for cutthroat trout. The tribe's legislative director, Tyrell Stevenson, says the real game changer is the federal government's willingness to work with the tribes to try to restore salmon runs. We've identified a problem, and that is how to get fish over those dams. So now we're working together to try and figure it out. And we've got we've got some funding, and we've got a common goal. Whereas before, it felt to the tribes like the federal government didn't want to even talk about fish passage. The Cordelaine tribe has already been working on an experimental program to release Chinook salmon into the waterways that the fish haven't been in since the completion of the Little Spokane Dam back in 1910. For National Native News, I'm Steve Jackson reporting from Spokane. The U.S. Department of Energy has announced $25 million for tribal clean energy projects through the Office of Indian Energy. Applications are open through May 30th for tribes, Alaska Native corporations, and tribal organizations. The DOE says the new funding is intended to help tribal communities deploy clean energy technology, lower energy costs, and increase energy sovereignty. The announcement was made Tuesday at the 2024 Tribal Clean Energy Summit, taking place in California. Director of the Office of Indian Energy Wahela Johns made the announcement. She invited attendees to learn more about her office and take advantage of opportunities they provide, including tribal assistance, grants, and outreach. The summit continues Wednesday, featuring speakers, breakout sessions, and on-site DOE hours. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A new report from the nonprofit California Competes looks at ways to get college stopouts, students who didn't finish their degree program, to come back and graduate. Suzanne Potter has the story. More than six million Californians stopped out of college before getting a degree, and now a new report lays out a plan to bring them back on campus. Researchers from the nonprofit California Competes in Oakland interviewed more than 50 students they call comebackers for the report, entitled "From Setback to Success: Meeting Comebacker Students Where They Are." Laura Bernhardt is a senior researcher at California Competes and notes that students say when it comes to outreach, an encouraging personal call from the school is much more effective than a form letter or email. 
some of them just said, if someone had just reached out and assured me that taking a break is fine and outlined what steps they need to do to be able to come back, that that would have been very helpful. The report also praises schools such as Shasta College and Sacramento State, which have flexible options where classes can be taken online or in compressed eight-week terms rather than the typical 16-week term. These schools and California Competes are part of a collaborative called California Attain, which aims to increase educational attainment and economic mobility of California adults who have some college but no credential. Bernhard says often students are hesitant to return because they can't afford to pay back fees or fines they may have racked up in the past. Research has shown that if you actually waive some of these fees in institutional debt, more students are likely to return and that will obviously lead to more tuition income. So it can actually be a very beneficial initiative for colleges to take. Schools are encouraged to show students of all ages, not just recent high school graduates, in their marketing materials. The report also advises schools to reframe their language around academic probation, letting students know that it is just a temporary setback, not a reason to get discouraged. Support for this reporting was provided by Lumina Foundation. For California News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. The transportation sector has replaced power plants as the nation's largest source of carbon emissions. While light-duty electric vehicles have become more visible, efforts are expanding to add more electric buses. Mike Moen reports from Wisconsin. Most schools and transit buses on the nation's roadways these days are still powered by diesel engines. But in Wisconsin and elsewhere, there's hope about the push to switch to electric fleets. The city of Racine has made headlines in recent years for leveraging federal funds to add more electric buses operated by its transit agency. And through the bipartisan infrastructure law, school systems like the Palmyra Eagle District have used federal grants to buy a handful of buses fitted with such technology. Susan Mudd is with the Environmental Law and Policy Center, a Midwest-based advocacy group. She says it's encouraging to see this activity, knowing the benefits that come with it. The children or the riders on buses, including the drivers, will experience zero tailpipe emissions, which they now do because fumes unfortunately often get recirculated into buses. These models also prevent harmful emissions from floating through neighborhoods, especially when buses are idled. Mudd says this has a positive effect on human health, as well as mitigating climate change, with transportation making up nearly 30 percent of U.S. carbon emissions. But even with federal support, she acknowledges there are still upfront cost barriers in securing electric buses. Mudd adds that implementing charging stations for larger electric bus fleets can be more intensive than infrastructure for passenger models. It definitely requires more equipment, may require transformer upgrades, and that is more costly. Organizations like hers are appealing to utilities to help make this infrastructure more accessible to schools and transit agencies. Once they get past the initial expenses, supporters say these efforts help schools and municipalities reduce their fuel costs. In late 2022, Wisconsin received more than $25 million in federal support to replace 65 diesel school buses around the state with electric ones. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Commercial real estate is being used at lower rates since the pandemic allowed many people to work from home. Converting vacant offices into apartments would be a win for the climate, advocates say. Repurposing a building reduces the need for new concrete and steel, which create a lot of carbon pollution during manufacturing. Dr. Anthony Lizowitz has more on the story with Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. 
In many cities, formerly lively business districts are eerily quiet. For years, office vacancies have been increasing, and since the pandemic, more offices are empty than ever before. Meanwhile, there is a massive shortage of residential units across the United States. Diane Hoskins is co-CEO of Gensler, the world's largest architecture firm, and co-author of a new book designed for a radically changing world. She says turning some of those vacant office buildings into apartments could create much-needed housing and help the climate. Anytime we reuse an existing building instead of building a new building, we are reducing carbon emissions on planet Earth. That's because repurposing a building dramatically reduces the need for new concrete and steel, which create a lot of carbon pollution. Many office buildings are not suitable for apartments. For example, because they have large interior areas with no windows. But Gensler estimates that perhaps a quarter are candidates for conversion. And with hundreds of millions of square feet of vacant office space across the country, that could add up to a lot of housing without a lot more carbon pollution. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. It's Wednesday, and that means a visit from KBU News poet Dan Raphael, who's witnessing another week of human nonsense and mixed emotions. Another predicted snowstorm that didn't happen. Another budget deadline looming. The war in Ukraine begins another year. Plastic pollution, melting glaciers, corporate greed. Just another existential problem I can't do anything about. Another country, Germany, decriminalized marijuana. And not another, but the first city to run out of water could be Mexico City, where 40% is lost to leaks and 22 million drink. Another national business, Macy's is closing many stores, 150. For Donnie, it's another gag order and more appeals. Will he ever go to trial? Back here, two former city commissioners want another chance, while three current commissioners want a different city job. Seems every day there's another new pothole on my route. The daffodils, crocuses, willows, et all aren't waiting. They don't need a calendar to know when it's spring, nor do they need another ice storm. For Poetic Justice, this is Dan Raphael. You are listening to the KBOO Evening News for Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. This is a volunteer-produced newscast, and we encourage your participation. Call or text us with your breaking news, stories, and tips at 971-245-2158. Our production team for tonight's newscast includes Dan Raphael and Reed Johnson. The producer is Althea Billings, and our engineer is the delightful Ray Bodwell. Special thanks to Antonia Gonzalez, Mike Moen, Suzanne Potter, Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and Alex Gonzalez. The director of Evening News is Althea Billings. The podcast of this newscast is available on our website at kboo.fm slash evening news. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. I'm Althea Billings. And I'm Reed Johnson. All of our KBOO programs, including Evening News, are supported by our members, lovely people like yourself. If you would like to become a member and support our programming, you can go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to 44321. Stay tuned now for Coast Range Radio and have a good night.
From the Coast Range Association, this is Coast Range Radio. I'm Michael Gaskill. For those of us who work to make a positive impact in the world, there is often this default toward